Welcome to Forward, a podcast where we explore how the humanities connect with today's issues. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with a researcher from Brock's Faculty of Humanities. What do you think of when I say the word opera? If you've never had the opportunity to experience opera, you may think of it as depicted in Downton Abbey, when Dame Kiri T. Kanawa performs for the wealthy Crawley household, dressed in their finest, in a lavish setting. Or perhaps you think of Ronnie and Loretta in 1987's Moonstruck, but what does opera look like today? What stories are being told with opera and who is telling them? How is opera, and classical music generally, responding to social justice movements like Black Lives Matter? My guest today has been asking those questions and examining those issues in the teaching of opera and music history. Dr. Nina Penner is an assistant professor in the Department of Music and specializes in opera, musical theater, and film music. This past year, she has been teaching the Music in Global Cultures and Music in Western Cultures courses at Brock. Dr. Penner is also the author of the recently published book, Storytelling in Opera and Musical Theater, Uh, released from Indiana University Press. The book is an exploration of how sung forms of drama tell stories, how music can orient spectators to characters' point of view, and how performers' choices affect not only who is telling the story, but what story is being told. So welcome, Nina. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. I am looking forward to our conversation very much. I have to confess, though, I do not have a strong background in opera. Um, so a lot of a lot of this is new to me as well as uh, to our listeners. So how did you get into studying opera and musical theater in the first place? Well, I was a music student at the University of Toronto. Uh, I was studying clarinet performance and I just happened to be um, uh, cast in uh, some opera productions. I mean, a, as a clarinet player, and in the in the orchestra, and I enjoyed it very much. And I wanted to see uh, what it looked like on stage because in the, in the pit, often you you don't get to see what's happening on stage. Uh, and then in my history courses, uh, I was very interested in uh, learning about about opera. And um, University of Toronto had a really lively group of people who were both performing it and uh, studying it academically. So uh, that's basically uh, how I got started. So you have been involved in performances then, as a as a musician. Yes. And and what is it about about opera that that attracts you to it? Well. It's the um, the multimedia aspect that there's just so many different components to it. Uh, it you know, um, one of the links that that um, that you, um, sh- you know, um, shared with this podcast was was saying that is you know opera is the um, was the, one of the first multimedia arts combining um, you know storytelling through acting, uh, gesture, dance, uh, set design. Uh, costume design, music. Um, yeah. So, um, and then just the, the stories of opera are larger than life. Um, the inclusion of music, I think adds an emotional depth that you don't get in some other art forms. Um, and also just the, the, the singing. Um, I mean, you get the, some of these components in, say, cinema, but they're, you know, usually not, there isn't, it's not a sung form of drama. And I think that really heightens the uh, emotional expression in operatic stories. 
So I understand that the genre of opera dates back to Italy around 1600. Um, where, where did it come from? What did it arise from? Well, um, the yeah, Western opera came from really this group of um, aristocrats in Florence called the Florentine Camperata. And they got together to s- discuss Greek philosophy and theater. So they were reading people like Plato and Aristotle. And they believed that music could not only represent emotions, but through representing them could arouse these emotions in spectators. And they also believed that music could affect one's moral character. So listening to the right kinds of music would make one a better person. And then listening to the wrong kinds of music might lead to moral corruption. Um, So the Camerata was thinking about the music of their own time. Uh, uh, You know, like Renaissance madrigals or polyphonic compositions with many different uh, intricate musical lines, yeah, fairly independent musical lines. And they, they didn't think that this music was really having this power. So they wanted to recreate Greek drama. Um, but the texts uh, of Greek plays, they, they survive. But, um, you know, and we know that this text was sung, but we don't really know much about what it sounded like. So in saying that they recreated Greek drama, um, I'm not suggesting that it, uh, the first operas really sound very much like uh, what Greek theater sounded like. So that, the musical components were pretty much newly, um, newly invented. Uh, though the story, some of the stories are, are you know, date from uh, uh, Greek mythology. I didn't know that. That's that. So, so it's just a, a continuation of, of using drama and music. It was just the next development in the, in the chain, so to speak. Yeah. This wasn't the first form of theater in which uh, there was, uh, you know, that was a song. So do we see opera in other cultures as well? Like I, my experience w- with it tends to be the the, the European um, version of opera, so to speak. Um, so do we have opera from Chinese cultures, African cultures? Yes. Uh, yeah, there's a very rich tradition of, uh, of Chinese opera. Um, I've just been preparing some uh, material for my music and global culture class on um, traditional forms of Japanese music. And um, a lot of these are... Are, are a sort of operatic form, like no and um, kabuki have uh, music and drama and, and dancing uh, and singing. Um, so are, are a sort of operatic type form. So what's the relation between opera and musical theater? Like is, is musical theater kind of another evolution on from opera or because it's still using music to tell a story, but it seems to have a very different right. um, yeah. vibe. Like I'm just thinking of the massive uh, popularity of Hamilton, for for example. And I don't recall seeing kind of that furor over an opera recently. Right. Um, so in the 19th century, some drama in Europe was simply just called opera. Some operas were more popular than others, but there wasn't this distinction between opera as a high art form and musical theater as a more popular form. This distinction arose in the 20th century along with a broader distinction between classical music and popular music. So opera continued the traditions of classical music, whereas musicals drew inspiration from the popular music of their time, be that jazz, rock, or more recently hip hop. Um, Now, there are some other distinctions today between opera and musical theater. For example, opera is still performed without electronic amplification. 
So it requires singers with training in classical uh, singing technique. So in the 19th century, especially, singers learned how to project their voices um, over these increasingly large orchestras um, that were accompanying opera. And singers learned to also expand the the natural range of their voice, particularly uh, for women in the opera registers. Whereas musicals call for a different sort of vocal training, not that they don't require vocal training, but that it's just um, the demands are different because they're, they're going to be mic'd. There's a different sort of musical accompaniment, uh, different musical styles, right? Uh, it's very different. You know, hip hop can be very virtuosic as uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda showed in Hamilton, uh, but that's a very different kind of virtuosity to the virtuosity featured in opera. They also have uh, different economic models. Uh, so opera companies are nonprofit organizations, whereas Broadway is a money-making enterprise, of course. Um, though these distinctions, I think, are somewhat breaking down. More and more opera companies are programming musicals. Um, and opera composers, especially in America and in Canada, are incorporating influences from musical theater. So is would it be fair to say then that when opera was being performed in the 17th, 18th centuries, that it was the musical theater of its days? Like, was this something that was accessible to all classes of people or did it tend to be the purview of particular classes? Um, yeah, opera was was the... Um you know, a big part of cultural life in Europe from the 17th century, um, you know, up until the the 20th century. I mean, the very first operas uh, were performed at court or at public, um, sorry, at private parties for aristocrats. Um, But so that's like around 1600. But even just a few decades later, the first public opera house opened in Venice and anyone could attend that. And tickets were at um, different price points to allow um, a larger portion of the population to, um, to attend. Okay, so then people would be kind of humming along or singing in the streets just like they do with their favorite Hamilton tunes. Yeah, very much. So there are examples like in the 19th century of um, composers like Rossini and Verdi, um, you know, holding back certain numbers that they think will be really popular and only rehearsing them like in private with just the singer um, because they don't want, you know, the organ grinders to get access to this music and start like playing it before the opera even premieres. Um, of course, they're, you know, once it premieres, then they want, you know, they want that to happen, but they, they, they want to be the first people to, to present this music. And I guess without um, recorded music, people's experience of music in the home and people's access to, to music would be diff- would be focused on live performances then, wouldn't it? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, so, so people would not only be exposed to operatic music in the theater itself, but also people would buy sheet music and play, you know, a favorite arias or um, sequences from the opera on on the piano and then you know someone might would sing along or the other person would sing themselves uh and in some ways i mean that's actually how i got exposed to musical theater i I actually i grew up in the niagara region um so it was sort of a trek to go to toronto to see a show it's not something like we did all the time most of the times actually i saw musicals were you know, a local um, high school or a, a theater, a local amateur theater group would put on a musical. 
Um, so a lot of the shows, uh, like, you know, Phantom of the Opera, I was, from my, for my day, you know, Phantom of the Opera and, um, Les Miserables, these shows, I was playing them, you know, on my piano or listening to the, you know, the, uh, Broadway cast recording before, um, I actually even saw the show in, in person. Is it fair to, to say that opera has a bit of a reputation for being like a high art form that's more for wealthy people or people who can afford to travel to to larger centers to to see these these kinds of of um, performances? Yeah, I mean that's definitely um, I think the public perception, and in some cases that's correct. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it is it is an expense to attend an opera, though. I mean, I was it's also an expense to attend, you know, um, a, a pop concert or a, um, a sports a sports game live. Yeah, I mean, in some in some cases, opera companies, I think, could do a lot more than they have to make the art form um, appealing to new audiences. I think there are you know, people are taking that a bit more seriously more recently. So um, what's happening in the opera world today? How, how is the opera world responding to issues like Black Lives Matter? Well, I mean, it's been a major wake-up call about the failure of prior diversification efforts. Um, I mean, there, it's obviously the classical music industry more generally has been aware of um, its diminishing audiences, its audience being primarily white and, and aging. Um, and there have been some, you know, small steps to try to correct this, for example, scholarships for people of color. But the, the issue, you know, with something like that, you know, which we should do is that, you know, these people come into a racist environment and aren't taken seriously about, you know, by their teachers and colleagues, and then they quit. Um, or, you know, an organization might hire a token person of color, but then that person is isolated and they might not be given any power to affect change within the organization. So um, I think there's an awareness that we need to get more creative, get more radical in how we're thinking about the future of the industry. So I heard a paper recently by Christopher Jenkins at Oberlin Conservatory. Uh, he gave his paper at the American Society for Aesthetics Conference. And basically it was trying to answer the question, why aren't there more black people in classical music? And, you know, he works at a conservatory. So, you know, and he's trying to increase the diversity of his uh, department, but, you know, and just, he was talking about the, the, the difficulties towards doing that. And he thinks the problem that is that the issue has been approached as, and I'll, here I'm quoting Jenkins, a project of assimilation in which other communities are expected not only to appreciate, but to adopt and replicate those aesthetics, rather than a project of integration in which aesthetic approaches are blended into a synthesized new product, end quote. So he's basically arguing that true change needs to involve aesthetic change, that these prior efforts that have been done um, didn't address like the content uh, of classical music, what is being performed and how it is being performed. Um, so he's arguing that we really need to, that you know, one of the reasons why, for example, we don't have more black people in classical music is that they don't see themselves represented in the organization 
the symphonies are not not playing almost any contemporary music at all, uh, let alone contemporary music by Black people. Um, and the performance style and the, the this the very experience, you know, you go to a symphony orchestra and everyone's wearing like 19th century um, you know, tuxedos. <laughs> and um, it's a very like formal atmosphere. Um, you know, people have to clap only at certain moments and there's only certain ways that you can express your appreciation of the performance. Um, so yeah, we really have to rethink the entire concert experience and yeah, what pieces are, what works are being performed. Um, is there, is there a history like have have black people been involved in opera since the beginning in in some like have have there been particular roles or do do we know of particular black artists from the past or has it always been um very very white <laughs> yes i mean especially in america uh there have been a lot you know there's a history of uh Black opera singers. There are also some uh, black opera composers. Uh, fewer of those. So there, is, there, there, there is a there is a tradition. Yeah. So there are there are works uh, we we can perform from the past. But to be honest, I I think we need to be thinking more future directed. You know, um, commissioning new new works by people of color. Uh, and some companies are are doing this uh, actually. During the pandemic, um, uh, the Nashville Opera commissioned a new piece called One Vote One um, that was, you know, and it wasn't just uh, black singers. It was, it was, you know, a black creative team as well. Um, and the musical style is very similar to what Jenkins is describing. Um, some operatic influences, the singers have operatic training, but drawing in influences from um, African-American uh, musical traditions like uh, jazz, like R&B. Um, so, and so this piece uh, was, you know, released during the pandemic. So it's, it's, you can uh, purchase, uh, you know, um, the rights to, to stream it on your own computer. And it was released um, gearing up to the American election. So it was about um, uh, a young black woman who feels that um, the uh, political system in America has failed her, that she, they just like, her vote doesn't matter. Like she can cast her vote, but like none of the parties um, represent, you know, are going to take any meaningful action on issues that are important to her. Uh, and then she gets these sort of visions from um, black women activists of the past telling her, you know, we fought, fought for your right to vote. And, you know, so you need to exercise that right. Um, and, and then of course it <laughs> ends with her going to vote. Um, and yeah, so that's a, a recent example of a company, um, you know, commissioning a new piece, uh, that's reworking, um, prior conceptions about what opera is and could be. And that's engaging with a really, <laughs> a very contemporary issue. Um, yes. It's not a romantic story set in the distant past. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's no romance at all. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of operas obviously do do have a romantic element, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when some of those um, great operas from the past, like Verdi or, you know, um, when when operas were performed um, historically, were, were they engaging in contemporary issues at, of their time? 
Yes, very much so. Um, Verity is actually a really good example. Um, there are, I was recently teaching La Traviata, and that's a funny story that he, so it's based on a contemporary novel that's about um, this uh, love affair between an, um, an upper class man and this prostitute. Um, and he wanted to set that into an opera, but the all operas at this time had to pass the censors. So when he submitted the libretto, they're like, oh no, this is too shocking. This, even though, even though the prostitute died. So, you know, he wasn't suggesting that they could go off and get married and becomes accepted into like, <laughs> you know, mainstream society. She died at the end, but they're still like, oh no, you know, this love story between this upper class man and this prostitute, we can't have this. Um, so they're like, oh, you have to set it like, you know, a hundred years in the past. And then that, that's okay. It's like not, as long as it we, he wasn't presenting this as like a contemporary story, then that would be okay. Uh, and yeah, there's also, some of his operas were much more political. So um, a chorus from his opera Nabucco, it was adopted by the um, Risorgimento who were fighting for um, Italian liberation of certain parts of Italy that were under foreign domination and then the unification of the country. But the Italian people, they saw themselves in those historical people and adopted this, this chorus of uh, Pensiero as this anthem for the Italian unification movement. So then the idea of using opera to address issues like um, voting and voting rights and accessibility um, and social justice issues around Black Lives Matter, that's very much in line with opera. Yes, yes. Historically, um, we... I think we sort of got away from that somewhat in the 20th century with this with this division that I previously mentioned about, you know, classical music being this art music kind of rarefied thing. And then um, popular music being the music of, you know, the people, the common people and addressing, you know, current issues. Um, well, another thing is just the proliferation of um, old works in the canon. So in, that's, that's the issue, really, is that in the 19th century, um, at least in the early 19th century, most of the operas that people would have went to was, were operas that were just created. They were premieres or re re revivals of works that were created just, you know, 10 years ago, um, just like musicals are today, well, sort of, <laughs> we're getting more and more revivals there too. Um, but anyway, um, uh, but then in the 20th century that changed or, or beginning in the 19th century that, that started to change and uh, opera started to, um, you know, just, just be performing the Mozart, the Verdi, the Wagner, uh, rather than looking to contemporary composers, whereas musicals were able to become more current because they were, um, you know, they were always performing the newest hit. Now, I know when you did our Brock Talks uh, last semester, or I guess back last fall now, um, you were talking about a performance of, was it The Messiah? Uh, yes. Um, well, that actually hadn't happened. Oh, it hadn't happened. But, but, it, um, but, uh, but it, um, I think in the question period, I did talk about a little bit about it. Um, so 
Against the Green Theatre in Toronto uh, is, is this indie, indie opera company um, that previously just had a sort of local following. Um, but they made this version of Messiah that was uh, released on YouTube uh, in December uh, for free, actually. You had to register. You had to sign up. But then but it was actually um, released for free. And... Um, uh, they had a sort of watch party on a certain date in, De- in mid-December, but then it was available for about a month after that. And it garnered over 100,000 views um, in like over 40 countries, which is pretty amazing for mm-hmm. a, such a small company that if they had done this in person, um, you know, they would have maybe gotten like 2,000 people um, to see it. Probably less than that, actually. Um, so that's pretty, that was pretty amazing. Um and the the conception of the piece was was really interesting. Joel Ivney of Against the Grain teamed up with the Indigenous director Renalta Arluk, and um, all of the soloists uh, they engaged were either Indigenous or um, people of color. And some of them had um, little experience in Western art music, or were you know you know currently uh, working more in popular music, folk music. Um, various forms of indigenous music. Um, And what was interesting to me about this project was that it was the singers who took the lead. A lot of the time in opera, when you, you know, they have these new um, sort of edgy productions, it's the director, this usually this white man who decides what is this, what are they going to do in this, this cutting edge new production. But it was really more the singers that took the lead in, you know, they decided what language they would sing in. They didn't need to sing in English. Um, so we have performances in French, Arabic, Inuktitut, Dene, and Southern Tuchone. Um, They also in, uh, decided the interpretive frame for their performances. So in some cases, these translations have a somewhat minimal relationship with the original text, at least in terms of a, it's sort of spiritual context, um, you know, a shift from Christian to indigenous cosmologies in some cases. So um, as an example, uh, Diet from the Kluin First Nation, um, you know, was initially reluctant to, re- to appear in this production because, um, you know, she wasn't working in Western classical music. Uh, and, you know, her mother was um, part of the residential school system. And, you know, mm-hmm. she just saw this, you know, performance of this Western piece, this Christian Western piece as, as um, you know, playing into this colonial, this perpetuation of colonial attitudes, um, you know, and, and it just called to mind the cultural genocide of the residential school system for her. Um, but then, you know, they told her that, she could perform this in Southern Tuchone, uh, which is, you know, language there are very few um, fluent speakers today. So she collaborated with her grandmother um, in creating a translation um, that they didn't need to, it didn't need to be in a Christian context. You know, they, they, they took it, uh, they took the piece, Oh, thou that tell us good tidings to Zion, which is about, you know, the, how good it is that, you know, Christ is coming. Um, and they took that as a celebration of the creator and the land. Mm. And they filmed it on this, um, in, um, near her, her hometown, um, in, um, I believe the Northwest territories. And it was just, it was a really, really beautiful, uh, 
beautiful piece of of the uh, the larger the larger work. So is 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 this part of a larger movement, or is this just kind of the the, the beginning of incorporating indigenous voices? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of companies are doing this in different ways. Um, so against the grain, their mandate is to perform generally um, traditional operas like, you know, by Mer- my by Mozart, by um, uh, Handel in this case, um, but then rethink how they are performing them. So, um, you know, they'll perform them in English. Um, set in the present day, trying to make connections with current issues. Um, they also perform in unconventional venues. For example, they presented a version of uh, Puccini's La Boheme in a bar. That They actually recorded that on video, and I think that's still viewable online. If so, I'll, I'll include a link. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put some links to some of this in the, in the show notes for, for our listeners to check out. So, so yeah, so this... So this is sort of one approach is to take the classics, but then rethink how we're performing them. Who is, you know, who are we casting as singers and and in the, in the role of director Um, and, you know, trying to make these pieces speak to current issues. Um, So I think that's definitely something we should do and continue doing in the future. But I also think that we also need to um, commission new pieces um, so, for example, like with Messiah, I would have liked to have seen um, Against the Grain think, uh, take a more creative attitude towards the score. Like many of these singers that they, um, particularly the Indigenous singers that they contracted to appear in the, in the, in the production, um, you know, they, they were also songwriters. They could have, um, you know, asked these people to compose some new music, um, you know, have maybe some handle and then some like some some new new musical compositions as part of the piece. I think that would have um, that was somewhat of a missed opportunity there. So I feel like going forward, we we really need to have a lot more emphasis on new compositions, hopefully by you know people of color telling the stories that they want to tell and the ways that they want to tell them. I mean that's another issue that's come up in some of these conversations. Um, I was just recently listening to uh, the podcast of the Canadian Opera Company um, called Key Change, and they were interviewing uh, Ian Cousin, which is currently uh, who is currently their composer in residence. Um, and he was talking about that that you know he's um, been you know recently contracted to compose some new some new pieces, um, but. In some cases, you know, people not without naming names, some, you know, some people have, um, you know, had very specific ideas about what he should do. Um, whereas, I mean, some suggestions uh, I'm sure are welcome, but, but, you know, um, it would be great if, if people were giving a bit, a bit more um, uh, leeway to create what they, you know, a piece that represents um, their community today. And I imagine that the idea of tradition is probably very strong in opera and and classical music. Yes, um, yes, the tradition um, carries a lot a lot of weight, and um, I think opera companies. I think it's it's hard for them to um, take to you know to to embrace new works and take a new direction because so many of their their patrons are 
are, are old and they, you know, they assume that these older people, they want to see the familiar pieces. And to some extent, that's true. I mean, if they can, they just completely stop performing Mozart and Verdi, there'll be a problem, I think, um, with their existing base. Um, but I think, um, yeah, they think they need to to incorporate more and more new pieces to bring to bring a new audience to opera. Yeah. Yeah. And to create those opportunities, too, for Black and Indigenous artists. Yes. And, and we haven't talked about um, about other minority artists um, as well. I'm, I'm sure there I'm sure there are others who uh, of, of other um, ethnic backgrounds who are also struggling in, in opera to to find their place. Yes. So I want to ask, um, because this this connects us, uh, I guess, with what you've been teaching this past year. Um, you've been teaching a revamped course on music history and looking at it um, from a global perspective and, and, and um, a, a multicultural perspective rather than what some of us may may remember from our school days, um, this f- focusing just on the Western European um, composers. So what... What are some of the issues um, with the teaching of music history? Because I, I imagine that that is very much where people's exposure to classical music and opera begins um, in high school and university um, music history classes. Yes. Um, so Brock reworked his core history sequence a few years ago before I was hired. So I was sort of... Um, so this wasn't, wasn't my my brainchild, um, but I think it's a, it's a very important um, important development for Brock. So it used to be um, the history sequence used to be solely focused on Western classical music, um, but now students um, music students take one year of music and global culture, and this course is by the way open to non music majors as well, um, and then one mu- one year of music and Western culture. Um, and when I was in school. Uh, Western music was, you know, neatly separated from all other forms of music, including popular music um, from the West. And there were some classes in these other types of music, but these were generally electives rather than core courses or courses that were deemed, um, you know, required for all students. Um, But today we're realizing that the way we've taught music history has upheld colonial ways of thinking First of all, in this neat separation of the West from the West and um, this upholding of Western classical music as the most important type of music, because that is what, you know, everyone had to take. And these other musics were just like, you know, elective, fun electives. So today, many musicologists are attempting to integrate our study of Western classical music with jazz and popular music. And all of these forms of Western music with other musical traditions around the globe. You know, this makes sense from in terms of our current globalized world, but it actually also benefits our study of music from the past. So I'm by coincidence this week, I'm covering um, Claude Debussy and Toro Takamitsu uh, in my two courses. And, you know, there's a lot of connections between them. So uh, Debussy was a French composer of the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century. And, but he, you know, he heard some music from Asia um, at the 1889 Paris World's Fair and was really influenced by it and, you know, incorporated certain elements in, in his work. Toro Takamitsu was a Japanese composer of the 20th century 
and he began composing in a Western classical style, influenced by Debussy, among other people, um, and then started combining these influences with traditional Japanese music. So studying music in no and kabuki theater not only helps us understand Toro Takabitsu, but also Claude Debussy. Okay. So why do you, like, what, what do you think is, is the reason that, 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 the teaching of music history has been kind of dominated by, by what some might call the quote unquote dead white men of uh, classical music. Well, I think it really stems from the way music scholarship has been carved up into fields. So scholars who study the role of music in society have traditionally been divided into two fields. Musicology, which is my field, uh, focuses on Western classical music, Though within the last couple of decades, it also 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 includes popular music, uh, and the methodology is a sort of historical approach combined with interpretation or close reading. Now, um, I think music is somewhat unique in having a completely separate discipline of ethnomusicology. Um, you know, we don't see this, say, in theater studies or um, you know English uh, literature um, or art. And ethnomusicology is directed at um, music of basically all of the other world's traditions, and they have a completely different methodology. They're primarily trained in anthropological methods of sort of field work, interviewing people, uh, observing uh, cultural practices and writing about them, um, rather than taking a historical sort of approach or analytical approach. Um, So since I was trained in musicology, Um, I really only learned about Western classical music. Uh, There was some effort to incorporate women when I was in school, but almost no effort to incorporate people of color. Um, And, but today, I mean, thankfully, this distinction between musicology and ethnomusicology, I think is breaking down slowly. I mean, I think it will be um, because of this methodological difference, it will be some time before it completely, um, you know, goes away, but, um, but, but there are some signs of things changing. So, you know, beginning with this questioning of the separation between Western and non-Western music, uh, but even methodologically, there are some difference, um, you know, these differences are breaking down. So musicologists are now conducting ethnographic work, um, for example, um, interviewing musicians, um, and ethnomusicologists are, are visiting archives and doing more historical work. I want to come back to when you were talking about performances. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how the pandemic is changing people's access to an experience of opera and classical music. And, um, and I'm also thinking about that in terms of education, because then that gives people uh, either formal or informal education um, exposure to different kinds of performances and composers and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I'm just wondering what, what, what your thoughts are there with this massive shift that we want uh, to online and virtual that, that we've experienced. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some exciting um, opportunities for, yeah, the against the grain example of Messiah is a really great one because, you know, this, um, this company that, you know, that has traditionally just had this local following in, in Toronto is suddenly like cap- catapulted to a world stage, um, you know, reaching a hundred, a hundred thousand uh, viewers all across the globe. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for even small companies um, to expand their following if they're doing, you know, exciting, exciting work. Um, and also, you know, accessibility that um, that viewing some of these things. Um, Maasai was was free. Of course, they were encouraging also people to donate and they did get a lot of money from it um, from it as well. Um, but, you know, other things I've, um, you know, uh, yeah, one vote one was, I think, about. It was less than twenty dollars uh, to stream it, um, so that's a lot less than the cost of an opera ticket. Um, and uh, I think there's been a lot of interesting opportunities um, for for companies doing innovative work. Another another person, uh, another company that uh, has been doing some interesting things over the pandemic uh, has been um, LA's the industry. So they they produced a piece uh, called Sweetland that um, premiered just before the pandemic um, uh, shut, you know, shut everything down. So it was sort of, the pandemic was still a, an issue, but they did, you know, it hadn't, it was before the shutdown. Um, and then they, they were, they wisely recorded one of these performances. They, they told the audience don't come, but they, and they still did it for a camera crew. And then they put it up on Vimeo. And again, you can, you can stream it for about $20. Um, and, you know, I would have never seen this piece, right? I'm not going to go to the LA just to see this piece, even though, you know, I know that I had been familiar with their work and I wanted to see it. So that was my opportunity. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's been, I think it's, it's going to really help some of these smaller companies, like, because they can they can tap a much broader market of people all over the world. They don't have to, you know, that was previously, I think, the issue that you'd only have opera companies in big cities because that was the only place that had a large enough population that there would be enough people who are interested in opera. Uh, but now you don't necessarily have to confine yourself to just um, your own physical people that can drive to your, your performances. Yeah. And it gives it gives children and young adults the opportunity to see people like them doing opera. Right. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was one thing with Sweetland. It's it's a story about colonization. So naturally, uh, the inclusion of Indigenous voices was very, very important, both in the conception um, and also performance. So I would um, highly recommend Sweetland. I think it's a really... Um, it's a challenging piece, obviously, um, but it's. Um, I think that is a it's a model for like, the kind of collaboration that I'd like to see going forward. Well, it sounds really, really exciting, and you've got me excited to uh, to check out some of some of these performances. As as I said, I don't have a lot of a lot of opera um, experiences, but um, it is definitely exciting to to see that the field is responding to some of these changes and and um, diversifying. Um, on stage and I suppose all of the backstage and the supportive organization. It's uh, not just the, 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 the folks on the stage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, I think that's pretty key that um, as I was saying, yeah, there is a long tradition of, of uh, people of color in performance roles, but I think what we don't have a tradition of is people of color in leadership positions as mm -hmm. as composers as directors as you know general directors of opera companies we need to see more of that 
Yeah. So before we go, I wanted to um, give you a chance to tell me a little bit about your book, because this is uh, newly, newly released. I think it just came out 20... 2020? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Just in the fall. Yeah. Um, so you, um, in that book, you're looking at opera and musical theater. Um, what are some of the general ideas that, um, that, that you explore there? Sure. Um, so basically it's, it's a book about how opera tells stories in comparison with other media. So I look at things like, uh, the role of narrators in opera, a lot of operas are based, I mean, almost all operas are based on some sort of pre-existing work. Often, you know, in, since at least the 19th century, often that was a literary work with some sort of formal narr- narrator structure. Um, but then how does that translate to a stage format where these sorts of narrator fingers are um, perhaps a bit awkward or difficult to incorporate? Um but then what, you know, even if you don't have this narrator figure on stage, the you know, what about the music? People have often thought about the orchestra as this sort of um, commentative force on, on the work. So I have a chapter on um, the role of the orchestra in um, operatic storytelling. But because of my background in, in performance, I wanted to talk about the realities of, you know, what happens in the rehearsal room when they decide, okay, you know, this opera does not have a narrator, but we're going to insert one or, you know, kind of promote this character and sort of stage it as if this person is telling the story. Or what about we, what if we even change the score and substitute this piece of music for that one? Um, And that's actually happening somewhat uh, increasingly. And um, so I wanted to discuss, um, yeah, productions and performance practice uh, issues as well. So I have several chapters about uh, about that. Yeah. And do you get into the um, emotional aspect of, of music, how it's how it's used to generate emotion? For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I have a I have a chapter about um, the concept of point of view and how op, um, how the music particularly can orient us to per- particular characters' points of view. And I think that's one of the, what's one of the most powerful things about opera, um, you know, in comparison with say other, other art forms is the sort of, um, yeah, as I mentioned before, when we first started, the emotional, um, emotional power of these stories and the ability for opera to um, get us to empathize with characters that, we would maybe be, you know, if we met this person in real life, we would have trouble empathizing with them because they're just so different. Their experience is so different from us, or maybe they have, um, they've made, you know, unfortunate choices in their lives. Uh, and we would just sort of like, oh, well, that, that person is just, um, that's too divorced from my own experience. But through opera, you know, um, through the music, we can um, relate with those characters, I think, Um and this has, I think, a lot of potential, both for good and bad, I think. Um, but, but you know, for good of, of allowing us to see the world from the perspective of an Indigenous person, you know, say, in, like, as in Sweetland, as, you know, they have these Indigenous characters and, you know, and then the colonizers come and, you know, what that, you know, trying to imagine what that encounter would have been like. And finally, one last thing I want to ask. Um, 
So if our listeners haven't had experience with opera and maybe want to dip their toes into it after listening to our conversation, do you have a particular performance or um, work or theater or opera company that you would recommend our listeners check out as a way to get started? Okay. Um, Well, I think, I think I'd recommend, I've already mentioned a few of these people, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I'd encourage people to check out new pieces by, um, yeah, the industry, the Sweetland, uh, Toronto's Tapestry Opera, so a more local fall, um, company, Toronto's Tapestry Opera, has been doing interesting things during during the pandemic. Uh, people who are interested more in um, a sort of more traditional musical experience might be interested in um, Against the Grain Theatre. So, you know, you have familiar music, uh, uh, by say Mozart or Handel, but um, but in a more updated setting in English, so there's no need you know for subtitles or to read a plot summary um, before you attend. The larger companies, I think, have been been slower to um, adapt, uh, and you know haven't been putting out so many things during the pandemic, largely because of. Um, issues with unions and logistics. Uh, but the Canadian Opera Company has been doing some interesting things. Ian Cousin is currently court composer in residence. Uh, he's just completed a new piece for young audiences called Phantasma, and that was supposed to be premiered by now. But um, as soon as social distancing is over, I'm sure that that will be in production. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, you can um, look at other pieces that Cousin has written. Uh, he's composed a new aria for Harry Summers' Louis Riel. Um, so this is kind of a long story. But anyway, this piece is from the 60s, and it had this aria that was appropriated from the Niska people of BC without permission, um, and it was used inappropriately. So basically, there's it's it's a really important Canadian opera, but mm. it, it, there's a section of it that's unperformable today because of this moral issue. Um, so Cousin composed a new aria that would replace that that aria in future performances of Louis Riel. And that aria has been recorded. Um, so I can include a, a link to that. Mm. I was very impressed with it. So I'm looking forward to hearing more by Ian Cousin. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, like I said earlier, I am looking forward to checking out some of these um, some of these performances and companies myself to expand my own understanding of opera and what it is and who it's for and who's who's making it. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts and past episodes on our website, rockyou.ca forward slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners. So please join us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Rock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. Theme music is by Khalidi Mam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.